The Interchange is brought to you by Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma Energy Solutions provides a unique financing model for battery energy storage systems. Prisma's customized lease options can help you reduce energy demand, participate in both energy and ancillary service markets, improve renewables integration, increase system reliability, and reduce your carbon footprint. There's no designer technology risk, no maintenance hassle, and the upfront capital expense is greatly reduced, especially compared to a system purchase. Visit prismaenergy.com to learn more. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM in Boston. Welcome. Destruction, dislocation, collapse, a permanent reset. Read any news about oil markets and these are the vivid descriptions you'll encounter. We are now deep into a historic pause for oil demand across the globe. It's shutting down oil fields, causing negative pricing, overwhelming our storage abilities, and forcing up to a million job losses this year. Shell CEO Ben Van Burden on a recent investor call said we're looking at a major demand destruction and we don't know when it will come back. So if demand doesn't come back, what happens? What are the direct consequences to the oil industry? And what are the opportunities for a new energy order, as the World Economic Forum is now calling it? With me to help figure out this new world order is Shale Khan. You know him as my regular co-host and managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Hello, Stephen. We have a guest with us this week here to help the two of us understand this upheaval in oil. It is Ed Crooks, the vice chair for the Americas at GTM's parent company, Wood McKenzie. And before going to Wood Mac last fall, Ed was a well-known editor at the Financial Times for nearly a decade and a half. He was formerly a producer at the BBC as well, and he's one of the go-to people watching oil dynamics and how they intersect with the clean energy transition. Ed, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks very much for having me on. So we've had a lot of listeners over the last few weeks write in and ask us about what's unfolding in oil markets. We did a live show recently, and we had probably nine or ten questions about oil. So we're going to try to tackle them. Shale, what are the big questions in your mind that we're hoping to answer or at least grapple with with Ed? Well, personally, coming at this from the perspective of somebody who's definitely not an expert in oil markets, I would say my questions that I've been curious to answer and Ed can help me illuminate a little bit now are there's maybe there's four of them. So the first one was what the hell is going on? You know, we have negative prices, we have this Saudi OPEC Russia stuff, we've got economies in turmoil. So like what's happening, just unpacking that. The second one is what about what's happening right now in oil markets is short-term COVID related, like you said, this like unprecedented demand destruction from shelter in place orders versus what might persist beyond COVID into recession and what might persist even beyond recession into the foreseeable future. The third is, in what ways do we think this might fundamentally reshape the global energy landscape, and particularly the largest players within it, the super majors? And then finally, like what might be the knock-on effects of all this to the sectors which I do spend more time on, like the power sector and renewables and electric vehicles and all these other technologies? So not much of a tall order for you, Ed. No, it should be pretty straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so what is it like at this moment going from the, the journalism world as an editor at a major publication versus in the sort of research and analysis world at a place like Wood Mackenzie? How are you thinking about these issues differently at a moment of crisis like this? Well, I guess one thing I'm thinking is I picked a great time to join the energy industry. That was um, really uh, impressive career planning on my part. Um, no, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's quite similar, right? So we are trying to understand what's going on. We're trying to make sense of the mayhem, the craziness that's going on in the world of energy. And we are thinking it through, talking to a lot of people, crunching the numbers, uh, analysing the data, trying to make projections about it and look where uh, things are going. So um, some of that is not really dissimilar from what I was doing in my previous career as a journalist. I guess the... Uh, one of the crucial differences is that at Wood Mackenzie, we are very data driven. We have access to a vast amount of data about um, the world's oil system, particularly in terms of um, oil and gas fields, in terms of uh, the supply picture, in terms of what companies are doing. We also have a lot of information about oil demand, where uh, oil and other uh, forms of energy are being used. And then now, I mean, that, that's the historic roots of the company were in, in oil and gas. It's now also um, very much developed into um, power and renew renewables um, by buying Green Tech Media, a deal about three years ago. And then late last year, we bought a company called Genscape, which has a big operation studying the power industry in the US and around the world. So again, that's another source of an enormous amount of data for us. So a lot of the time, what we're doing is, as I say, crunching those numbers, trying to dig into exactly what is going on right now and trying to draw conclusions on that from the future. All right. Well, good news, Shale. All the questions that you outlined are what we plan on getting to. So let's get into it. So there have been a lot of crises in oil markets throughout history. We, we see these periods of wild swings, uh, major bankruptcies. This does feel different. So when you think about the historic events that have shaped world oil markets in the past, how historic an event are we witnessing right now? It's undoubtedly a historic event. I think people have been throwing around the word unprecedented. I think we've been using it a bit already uh, on this podcast. I'm not certain it's completely unprecedented. I guess you could say that certainly the effort to kind of shut down uh, a large part of the world economy, uh, probably the majority of the world economy, that is unprecedented. But actually, we have seen uh, demand destruction uh, on a similar scale in the past. But you have to look back to the really uh, extreme examples of economic downturn. I mean, the big one, I guess you could say, is the Great Depression in the early 1930s. If you go back then, uh, US oil production is looking at production, but demand uh, picture would be pretty similar. US oil production dropped 11% in 1930, then a further 5% in 1931, and then another 8% in 1932. So that was very, very uh, sustained decline in demand there. We've seen, we think, um, a decline in the second quarter of this year about uh, of about 15% or so. Um, and projections suggest it is going to bounce back from that. So in that sense, you could say, hopefully, touch wood, depending on the way various things play out, and I'm sure we'll be getting into some of those issues in a bit, um, this may be not as severe as what we saw in the Great Depression. But certainly, it's of a similar magnitude. It's on a similar scale. And I think when you think about if people read history books, and if you talk to maybe members of your family about what was life like in the Great Depression, I think we've got much more of a 
a handle on that now. We have much more of a sense of what it's like living through those really extreme circumstances. Can we spend a minute just separating out the threads of what caused us to get to where we are today? This is I, I've had a hard time unpacking this, which is so oil prices collapsed. We know that. But what's unclear to me is how much of that collapse was driven by COVID and economies shutting down and demand destruction versus what I know there's also been a dynamic on the supply side, particularly between Russia and Saudi Arabia, that was occurring, as I understand it, kind of simultaneously with the time that COVID was ramping up, but we weren't yet in shelter in place. So it feels like those two dynamics both played in, and it's unclear to me how much uh, responsibility to assign to each of them. I think it's very clear, actually, and very easy to answer that, really, um, which is that it's almost all on the demand side. It's been the big drop-off in oil demand that's been absolutely critical in driving what's happened in the market. Um, Just think about the orders of magnitude. If you think about um, the issue with OPEC and the OPEC plus countries, including Russia, they were talking about a production cut of possibly 1.5 million barrels a day. That was what they hoped to agree at the beginning of March, and they failed to, essentially, because the Russians didn't want to go along with it. And that was why that agreement fell apart. And and for a while, then, that led to uh, several countries for a, uh, for a period, um, increasing their production instead of cutting it. But as I say, that was about 1.5 million barrels per day in terms of additional supply on the market. Um, if you look at what's been lost in terms of demand, it's an order of magnitude greater. It's about 10 times that roughly, let's say, 15 million barrels a day of demand has been lost right now. Um, it'll be about that probably um, maybe slightly less than that on average for the second quarter of this year. So that's been a huge effect. And that's really kind of swamped anything else. Although there was a lot of talk about OPEC plus and a lot of discussion about Um, Russia and Saudi Arabia and their contribution to the oil price crash, that was not the big big factor. That was not the real deal. The real deal was all about the demand side. Now, that said, then what we've seen from the OPEC plus countries, when they had uh, a few weeks to think about what had happened and realise just how bad things were, they got back round the table again, and then have agreed much larger cuts in output. And that has definitely had some effect, I think. And that's just starting to take effect right now. They, They agreed Um, production cuts of nearly 10 million barrels a day, about 9.8 million barrels a day, which took effect from May the 1st of this year. So we're just in the first week of those cuts taking effect. And that does seem to be having an effect on the oil market. So that was significant. But that initial breakdown they had back in the beginning of March, that was not such a big deal. You may not have these numbers handy, but as we're talking about the demand side, it's probably worth separating out where, what are the major sources of oil demand? Right, like how much of of crude oil demand goes to petrochemicals versus road transportation versus air transportation, because that obviously will impact how fast the recovery is. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it's very interesting. Obviously, when people think about oil demand, people think immediately about gasoline and uh, passenger road transport. That's the the kind of the obvious place where most of us come into contact with. Uh, Uh, oil being used in our daily lives, that uh, segment of demand is very much a minority of total global oil consumption. It's about uh, a quarter of total global oil demand goes for passenger road transport. Um, Probably about another quarter goes for freight transport uh, on road, and then a little bit more goes for um, uh, about 7% or so goes for air transport. So put all those things together, 
transport as a whole is about 57% or so, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, of oil consumption. And then there are other things which are um, then also pretty significant. There's um, use in agriculture. There is use um, as a petrochemical feedstock, as you say. That's that's a very big uh, one and possibly one we'll want to get into because that's very important for the future of oil when people think about how oil demand might develop over the next couple of decades. Um, its use in petrochemicals is the single biggest source of demand growth. Um, and so, it's uh, anyway, a lot of the, those other um, things are certainly very significant and it, when you focus only on um, are the planes flying are the roads busy that doesn't give you the whole picture in terms of what's happening to world consumption right i think that's important because i've had a bunch of people sort of ask me a question that i think is reasonable on the outside which is wait a second haven't we basically shut down air travel and haven't we cut road transportation down substantially how is it that oil demand in total isn't down even further than it is. And the answer is what you're describing, which is that road passenger transportation is only 25%, air transportation is only another 7%, and those have seen some a significant impact. But there's enough of a market for oil outside of those sectors that the total impact is much more muted. Exactly. Albeit that. still big in the context of the oil markets. Exactly. Yeah. No, and that's also a really good point, which is uh, in general, if uh, consumption or production of oil moves by a million barrels a day in either direction, that can be uh, quite a big um, influence on prices. Um, the The big issue with uh, the oil market in general is that both production and consumption are pretty price inelastic, that um, it's hard to ramp production of oil up and down very quickly. And it's also hard to change demand very quickly. If you need oil, you need oil. And you can cut your consumption off uh, to an extent if the price goes up, but not very much. And so what that tends to mean is that if oil demand is quite sticky on both the supply and the demand side, um, that means that even when you have relatively modest moves in either supply or demand, you can get quite a big response in terms of prices. And what we've seen this year has been an absolutely massive move in terms of demand. And so it's no surprise that we've had these very, very low oil prices that we've seen this year. Right. So let's talk about those low oil prices and what it actually means about what is happening out in the physical world. So uh, back toward the end of April, which feels like an eternity ago, we saw the benchmark price uh, of WTI crude fall into negative territory. I think it was the first time that had happened in history. Is that correct? That was indeed the first time that's ever happened. Um, uh, having said that, uh, n- very few things are genuinely unprecedented. That was genuinely unprecedented. That contract, <laughs> the um, the WTI futures contract, had never gone negative in the past in its history, which goes back to the 1980s. Right. So, so tell us about what that means for why futures fell into negative territory and what that means for the dynamics at play in terms of oil storage like you actually had you actually had to sell the physical oil to someone and no one wanted to buy that oil because there's no place to put it so just talk about what why those contracts were structured in a certain way that made prices 
go into negative territory and what that means for what was actually happening out in the world. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, as you say, one of the crucial things here is that distinction between physical oil and financial oil. I think very often kind of when you look at the news or whatever. Most oil is financial oil, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. The great majority of all the oil out there is financial oil, what's sometimes called paper oil. Obviously, it doesn't exist uh, uh, on paper anymore, but it exists as as bits and uh, pixels on a screen. And that's most of the oil that is traded. And in fact, that's um, what typically gets reported when people talk about the oil price and you hear the oil price reported on the news. The price they're generally talking about is the price of the WTI financial futures contract. Um, And that WTI being West Texas Intermediate, that's the benchmark oil, um, kind of a standard type of oil produced in the United States. And the price that generally gets quoted is that um, uh, futures contract price. Um, But in fact, there's lots and lots of oil prices all over the country and all over the world. And many of them differ from that financial contract price uh, quite significantly, um, because typically they are affected by physical factors. What's the quality of the oil that you've got? Do Which types of refinery want it? Do you have uh, somewhere to store the oil? Do you have a pipeline you can put the oil into to take it to market and all those kind of factors? And those two worlds, the sort of the physical oil world and the financial oil world, don't generally touch very much. I mean, they interact with each other, but they're never kind of um, entirely in sync, except at one point, which is the point that a financial futures contract um, becomes what they call deliverable when it expires and it turns into physical oil. And what we saw um, back, as you say, in late April was that the May contract um, for May oil futures was uh, coming to expiry and was therefore about to turn into physical oil. And what that meant was that if you were holding a long position when the contract expires, you actually had to take delivery of physical barrels of oil, a thousand barrels of oil per contract. And it turned (laughs) out as that date approached, the expiry, which was on uh, the 22nd of April, turned out there were a lot of financial investors holding that oil who really didn't want physical barrels, particularly not physical barrels delivered at Cushing, Oklahoma, which is the the point where the contract is settled, and where they would have to work out what to do with it. And so what you got was that dash for the exits in those last few days. And suddenly a lot of people, investors all around the world, it, it seemed that there were quite a few retail investors in China, quite a few in South Korea, quite a few in the United States as well, um, suddenly made a dash for the exits because, as I say, they didn't want that physical oil, didn't know what to do with it. And it was particularly an issue that time round because, as I say, of this, this issue about delivering the oil at Cushing, Oklahoma, this um, uh, tiny little town in uh, northeastern Oklahoma, which has um, huge oil storage facilities. And so that's why it's used as the, uh, the location of settlement for the WTI futures contract. There's an enormous amount of oil storage there, but that storage was filling up very, very rapidly because production was still going on while oil consumption in the United States was absolutely collapsing. And so the price of storage was rocketing. Price of storage typically might be something like 25 cents per barrel per month. I saw there were reports there was um, storage costs being quoted of $600 per barrel per month. I mean, absolutely kind of insane prices were out there. And, um, And so if you haven't got the storage, 
um, nothing you can do. Crude oil, unfortunately, is one of those products you can't just uh, tip it down the drain. If you've got it and you don't want it, then you attract the attention of the authorities if you try any kind of manoeuvre like that. And so that created this this real problem of everyone desperately trying to get out of those contracts. Now, that seemed to be quite a, a short-lived phenomenon, and we've had a really a pretty significant bounce back. And at the moment, so the next kind of currently active contract, which is the one for June, that's coming up for um, expiring a couple of weeks. At the moment, we don't seem to have uh, any kind of worries that the same thing's going to happen there. And price of that's gone up, hit uh, $25 actually today, so so quite a reasonable rebound. But you do still have to worry. The um, uh, Those uh, tanks of Cushing are still filling up. They're, they're not going to get empty yet. And so I don't think it's at all impossible that we will see a similar kind of panic as this next contract comes to expire in a couple of weeks. And just to round this out, those investors, if they were holding those contracts, they were paying people to take the oil off of their hands. That's what negative pricing means. Exactly that. Yeah, it was a- absolutely amazing. For a time there, and one day, the contracts were trading as low as negative $40 per barrel. In other words, for every barrel of oil that you were long, that you had a position in, you had to pay someone $40 to take that off your hands, which is really quite, it was quite a crazy event. So we went through this madness. But as you said, the prices are currently trending up again. Hard to tell whether they will stay that way. And they're still low by historic standards, but you know, in the mid-20s at the moment of this recording. The as I understand it, the primary driver, and this alludes to what you described before as the main swing factor, is that demand actually appears to be rebounding to some degree. And you also see this, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal, but to the extent that it's been driven the demand destruction has been driven by the cessation of road transport, you know, there's all this data from like Apple that's releasing a bunch of mobility data on how people are moving around the world. And what we're seeing there is that there is already a rebound in driving behavior. There is not as much of a rebound in public transit behavior, which is unfortunate, I think, but suggests that to the extent that people are starting to move around the world again, they're doing so more in individual passenger vehicles than in transport. And it's possible that that could mean that oil demand recovers a little faster than you might otherwise expect because there's a mode shift underway. So do do we have a sense yet of what that means for oil markets and is that really what's driving this rebound in pricing? Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. I mean it's obviously pretty crazy that we're talking about $25 a barrel as being uh, hey, good news, this is a recovery. Um good news for oil producers, we're back all the way up to $25 a barrel, which is a level that even at the start of the year um would have been seen as really alarmingly low um by everyone in the oil business. I mean Obviously, a whole load of things have changed really radically in the past four months, but that's definitely one of them. As you say, it's clear that um, people are starting to drive again. The the data suggests this. I mean, even so, I live in New York City, which has obviously been one of the worst hit cities in the world, in fact, in terms of the number of cases that we've had. It's been a really uh, terrible, grim problem here. And Two weeks ago, you used to be able to step out into Broadway without looking and you know you'd be safe, it would be fine. The streets were absolutely deserted. And now you can't do that anymore. I went out the other day and I found myself having to kind of check the traffic and look, you know, look left, look right before I stepped out because there was a chance I'd be run, do- run over. Um, so that's, that's a measure of just 
how things are starting to change in this country and you are absolutely seeing that in the data and you're definitely seeing um, gasoline demand starting to pick up again. Um, if you compare with some other countries around the world, if you look what happened in China, so China's uh, perhaps a, a signal of our future because the disease COVID-19 hit there first and they had a very serious outbreak for many weeks there and took very extreme measures uh, there to bring it under control. Uh, driving now in China is absolutely back to normal. If you look at their traffic data, um, actually, probably it's even a little bit above where it was this time last year. So certainly people are driving again. They're not flying again to the same degree. And that's something which is clearly much slower to come back. And I suspect then that's pretty much what we're going to see in this country, which is um, you're going to see driving steadily recover. And that will create a lot more demand for oil and oil demand will start to get back to normal. Um, but flying will be slower. I think people are going to be um, reluctant and cautious about flying. And so that chunk of oil demand, which is a minority, as we've been saying, about 7% or so, it's it's absolutely not um, the main thing that oil is used for, but it's not insignificant either. That's, that's not a trivial amount of oil demand. Um, that is clearly going to be a lot slower to recover. Now, all of that uh, is being predicated on the pandemic being brought under control. And I think there are very genuine, serious questions about whether that is actually happening in the United States and whether, given that we're still seeing a pretty steady rate of new cases um, being found and a still uh, pretty steady death rate, um, you could certainly make the case, I think, that the, um, the country is being reopened prematurely and this is going to lead to another big uh, spike in infections and a spike in deaths that's going to lead to activity having to be shut down again. So it may be that this period of easing off and of increasing oil demand doesn't last. But as I say, that's the, that's the trajectory we're on at the moment, which is things starting to recover. So I think a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are focused primarily on the power sector. And obviously, oil does not play a, a particularly large role in the power sector. However, natural gas does and you know historically there has been an evolving relationship between oil and natural gas in a whole bunch of different ways um, natural gas we've not seen the same impacts in terms of pricing as we have seen on oil thus far so maybe just um, bring us up to speed on the current relationship between oil and natural gas and what we are seeing in natural gas markets today yeah. Uh, as you say, we've not seen anything like the same hit to natural gas prices that we've seen for oil. I guess you would say that uh, natural gas was already very, very cheap in this country. There wasn't uh, a lot of room for it to uh, go down in price, um, but certainly it has not been uh, uh, plunging the way that uh, the oil price has been. Um, I think a couple of reasons for that. One is uh, demand has been much more robust, um, natural gas use for um, power and for industry has been hit a bit. It has gone down somewhat, but it hasn't um, absolutely nosedived the way that oil demand has. Again, that critical factor being the use of a lot of oil in transport. That's the big reason, really, why oil demand has go gone down so much further than uh, for any other type of energy. Um, and so natural gas markets have been more robust. There's also an interesting sort of inverse relationship between oil and natural gas in particular because of 
associated gas, which is produced at the same time as oil, is kind of a byproduct of the oil production process. So that um, source of gas is very important, actually, for gas supply in the US. And what that creates is this kind of inverse correlation between what happens to oil and what happens to gas. In other words, so if oil prices go up, then that encourages more oil production. So you get more associated gas production. uh, So natural gas prices go down. And conversely, I think there's a bit of uh, that now operating in the other direction, which is that as oil prices fall, that's having a very clear and very noticeable effect on uh, oil production. A lot of oil wells are being shut in. Oil activity is absolutely cratering. So um, rigs are being laid down. Companies are not completing new wells, bringing them into production. And so that's going to have the effect of tightening natural gas supply. And that's something else which is kind of Uh, which is uh, supporting natural gas prices, putting a floor under the price of natural gas and stopping it um, really falling so far. So that dynamic seems quite a powerful one, certainly for the rest of this year, probably into next year as well, and is going to mean that it's quite possible even the natural gas prices next year are going to rise a little bit because supplies have been tightened by oil production going away. Well, that was a very helpful description of what is happening in the market today. I want to turn our focus to how this will play out in the medium and long term. First, let's talk quickly about our supporter of this show. It is Prisma Energy Solutions. Prisma Energy Solutions helps developers, municipalities, and commercial industrial customers reduce energy demand charges, generate income, increase grid reliability, and meet sustainability goals. Prisma has a five-year lease offering. It reduces transaction costs and allows customers to benefit from storage systems without being exposed to the financial and operational risks of ownership. Prisma has relationships with top-tier suppliers and integrators in the battery storage industry, and they'll customize lease solutions to fit your customers' needs. There's no designer technology risks, no maintenance or warranty hassle, and the upfront capital expenses are reduced to a minimum, especially as compared to a purchase. At the end of the lease term, customers have the option to renew, return, or purchase the battery system, creating even more project value. Visit Prisma Energy, P-R-I-S-M-A, Energy, prismaenergy.com to learn more. Okay, so we have heard on investor calls from top executives at Shell and BP their worries about how this is going to play out long term. I uh, mentioned the quote from uh, Ben Van Burden on a recent investor call in which he says he doesn't know if demand destruction will ever fully rebound. He also said something really interesting, which was this has the potential to catalyze society in a di- into a different way of thinking. So... What are the long-term consequences that these companies are grappling with right now? I guess the first thing to say very obviously, and you know, it's a basic point, but it's absolutely true, is there is a huge amount of uncertainty still. We still don't really understand this virus. It's very new. We don't understand its epidemiology fully. We don't know crucially whether there's going to be an effective vaccine that can be brought into production quickly and widely distributed so that uh, the global population can be protected against it. And whether or not that happens is going to have a huge impact on uh, what this means for energy in the long term. And so I think at the moment, everyone's kind of grappling with that uncertainty. They're trying to keep their options open. They're trying to keep as much flexibility as they possibly can, because they just don't know how it's all going to develop. I think, though, when people are thinking about potential outcomes and the way that things might go, clearly, 
um, for oil companies, the big issue is, back to this point again, what does it mean for transport fuel in particular? What does it mean for how much global trade there's going to be, how much global tourism there's going to be, um, how much people are going to want to be driving, uh, you know, how, how much people are going to be driving internal combustion engine vehicles? Will people shift over to electric vehicles or just uh, not drive anywhere at all? There's a lot of um, imponderables there which are moving in different directions. But certainly you can imagine a world in which there are two key trends operating. One is a backlash against globalization, basically, where you have people thinking international travel is dangerous. We don't want to be doing so much of that. We think that extended complex supply chains around the world are dangerous and vulnerable and going to create problems for our economies. And so people try to repatriate those to bring production closer to where goods are being consumed and so on, all those kind of things, which then would have various consequences, uh, including quite possibly making uh, global economic growth slower and also potentially uh, reducing demand for fuel, for shipping fuel, for road fuel and so on. So you could definitely imagine a world in which we are on a kind of a long-term course of lower oil demand than looked likely before the pandemic. The other big question, another big uncertainty that everyone's kind of grappling with at the moment is what's the policy response and to what extent do we see green stimulus, green New Deal type ideas um, really starting to catch on um, in policy terms? Do we see Europe pressing ahead very aggressively with its European Green Deal? Do we potentially get a Biden administration in this country which wants to try and use various kind of environmental measures, tackling climate change in particular as a way to get the economy going again. And if we do see those things really start to take root again, that could have a big impact on future oil demand, in particular through the electrification of transport. If we start to move to having a lot more electric cars on the road, also electric trucks, maybe even a little bit of uh, electric aviation and some electric uh, shipping and so on. That, again, puts us on a path of long-term lower oil demand and potentially a very significantly lower oil demand. And for these companies which are making long-term investments, if you're thinking about exploring for oil at the moment, you might be, if you have a discovery tomorrow, you might be bringing that oil into production five or ten years from now, and then you'd hope that that oil platform would still be producing 10, 20, 30, 40 years after that. So if you're making those kind of very long-term decisions, those long-term considerations about where oil demand is going to be decades from now, those considerations are really significant. Obviously, you can't get it right. No one's got a crystal ball. No one can be perfect in their decision-making. But definitely, if you think that there's a significant risk oil demand is going to be lower, that's going to be a disincentive to investing more in oil production. It feels like from the the what public statements we see and the rhetoric from the different super majors that there is a a pretty meaningful divide between the reaction and the assumption about what might happen or what's most likely to happen in the future that is geographically driven and and maybe related to the policy point that you mentioned before which is like the European super majors seem to have one view, maybe driven by the likelihood of European policy response, the American super major is a different one. Is that right? And can you describe that that delta as it exists today? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's like the old joke about 
any crisis, which is this reinforces my previously existing priors. You know, I think people are uh, looking at what's happening in the pandemic and using it as justification for why the strategic direction they've already set themselves on is the right one to take. Um, but definitely, that's what you're seeing, as you say, in Europe, those companies that are already committed to very significant decarbonisation. We've had BP um, earlier this year committing to net zero carbon by 2050. Um, Shell then made a very similar commitment. Actually, really, while the, the pandemic was blowing up, while it was uh, very much becoming apparent um, how serious the problem was. And Shell was not at all kind of deterred from that. And they didn't think we should be maybe holding back from making these ambitious commitments on emissions reduction now. They thought this was more of a justification to head down that road. And, and then Total did it this week. And then Total, actually. exactly. Very good point. Yeah, yeah. Total, as you say, did it this week. So again, very much the same thing. They're saying that there is this short-term crisis. It's very serious. We're going to have to work really hard to get through it, but it doesn't change our view of the long term. In fact, if anything, maybe um, reinforces our view that um, decarbonisation is important for the long term. Um, one issue in particular, I think that quite a few companies have been thinking about uh, in Europe, certainly, is the fact that renewable energy, um, in power in general, but uh, actually renewables within that in particular, um, has been quite a lot more resilient than demand for oil. Again, back to that point, we're talking about it in the case of natural gas, true in power as well. Demand has been hit, it is definitely down, but it hasn't dropped to anything like the same degree as it has for oil. And also, of course, a lot of um, power revenues are stable through contract or through regulation. People have signed PPAs or whatever, uh, and so they're getting um, a much more reliable stream of income than you get from oil production, where the price of your main product can go from $60 at the start of the year to minus $40 in April and then back to $25 uh, in May. And so when European oil company uh, CEOs and executives and boards look at that, they think, hey, we'd like a bit of that. This seems like a really um, attractive thing. Returns in power are generally lower because you're not taking so much risk. So that's been something which on the whole has made um, all oil companies, but even including the European ones, quite reticent to kind of rush into the power sector. But I think now when they make those kind of comparisons and weigh up power against oil the scales have really tilted much more in favour of power. And again, that, that point about the comparisons, the returns and how returns generally look better in oil, they don't look better in oil with uh, an oil price of $25 a barrel. That that might have been true if oil was $60, not true anymore. So that, I think, is what European companies are very much taking as, as I say, kind of vindication of their decisions and vindication of that strategy that set themselves on to move towards decarbonisation, to use investment in power as a big part of that strategy. The US companies, on the other hand, have been much more um, cautious about decarbonisation ambitions and have been very, very sceptical about the merits of them getting into power. They've basically said, it's a different business, we don't really understand it. They talk about this, this point about returns being lower. They say, what is the comparative advantage really for us in getting into the power business? If our shareholders want exposure to power, they can absolutely do that. They can go and invest in power separately. But why should they invest in power through the intermediary of an Exxon or a Chevron? And I think that's a that's a compelling argument, certainly. If you don't think you can bring anything to the table, then it does seem crazy to be investing in power assets. But then it does mean they are putting their chips 
pretty heavily on the recovery in oil demand. They need to be right about oil demand bouncing back and us getting back to something like normal reasonably quickly over the next few years, because if not, they have a grim future ahead of them. And so that, I think, is a very clear underlying difference, as you say, between what's going on in the US, what's going on in Europe, and certainly at least for the time being, I think that that divergence is actually widening. So there are very clear differences in company strategies. Let's pull back a bit and talk about the macroeconomic picture. So we've heard from a lot of listeners, Ed, and they've asked a very simple question. Is this good or bad for the clean energy transition? Now, that is a extremely complicated question to answer. Um, But I wonder, as you grapple with that question, because I know you're both focused on uh, oil markets and you're also focused on this clean energy transition globally as well. So what are the questions or the the factors in your mind as you try to assess that question? Because it is on top of people's minds right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously thinking about this a lot, too. It it feels to me like, and Ed, tell me if you feel different, it feels to me like it's hard to make an argument that this that COVID on the whole and the fallout thereafter will be an accelerant for the energy transition on net. Now, it seems to me like the big swing factor is the policy response, as you described before, that could make an enormous difference. And perhaps this long-term some of the long-term changes in supply chains and transportation that we've talked about. But all that being said, it it feels like any major shock to the global economy and recession is usually going to slow a transition that requires a big transition of capital deployment into a new sector. So I don't know, My I come in with a prior that this is a net negative with a couple of you know, asterisks around possible policy responses. I'm curious whether you feel the same way. Well, I mean, I guess, um, first of all, assume all the usual caveats. Um, We don't know for sure, don't have a crystal ball and so on. I guess one of my priors would be uh, exactly the opposite of yours, which would be that times of crisis often accelerate change. If you look at periods of uh, innovation in wartime, for instance, if you think about um, nuclear weapons and radar and the jet engine and so on, all those uh, innovations that transformed the world after the Second World War, it was the extreme pressure of the crisis that accelerated that. And I think it's not crazy to think that we could have uh, some similar developments here. I think, as we've discussed, two forces that could tend to drive an acceleration of the energy transition um, as we come out of the pandemic. One would be government policy. The other would be that point I've alluded to about investment capital, looking for returns and looking for the right risk return balance and finding that increasingly in power rather than in oil, given the tremendous problems that we've seen in the oil market over the past few months and that are likely to persist for some time. And so I think you'd actually probably see more capital heading into renewable energy. And I think if you look at, for instance, I think was it BlackRock uh, closed a fund to invest in power renewables and infrastructure, um, closed that a couple of weeks back, and that was greatly oversubscribed. And maybe just one straw in the wind, but I certainly think that's a pointer towards as we emerge from the pandemic, people probably in general being more positive about renewables than they will be about oil. 
I guess against that, two things you could say could work in the opposite direction and could tend to slow the pace of the energy transition, both really connected to this point about deglobalization and whether we see uh, increasing economic nationalism. One would be um, climate policy and whether climate policy really sort of um, withers away as an international phenomenon here and that the kind of uh, global agreements you need to keep countries like China and India really pushing forward on climate policy, you know, is it possible that that totally goes away? And so you see them very much more relying on domestic energy sources, in particular in coal, rather than trying to reduce carbon emissions. So that's one big issue and threat to the energy transition. And then the other would be the question of supply chains and the necessity of mineral supply chains in order to make the energy transition possible. And I'm thinking about lithium, cobalt, nickel, rare earth elements, and so on. All of those things are very global supply chains. Um, the countries that are the big consumers are not typically the big producers. If we see a reduction in the global mineral trade, if we see countries being much more determined to keep their own production within their own borders and not want to expose themselves to the risks of having international supply chains, then that would be another factor definitely that I think would slow the energy transition. I mean, just think about the United States. The United States still has a lot of oil in the ground. If the US wants to rely on using mostly that oil, rather than having to import battery raw materials from countries around the world, that will definitely be a problem. So certainly factors that could go in either direction. But as I say, I don't think it's, it's at all a foregone conclusion that this puts the brakes on the energy transition. Yeah, that last answer and question is a couple of episodes worth of content right there. And I know that you are a man of high demand right now, and we really appreciate you joining us to help us walk through some of these uh, immediate impacts and to start to toy with the long-term impacts. Thank you, Ed. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. Ed Crooks is vice chair for the Americas at Wood McKenzie. He's a former editor at the Financial Times. This has been a production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Our senior editor is Ingrid Lobet. Shale Khan is my co-host. And you can follow us anywhere you get your podcast. Be sure to tweet at us if you have any response to this episode or want to send us any story ideas. You can follow Ed there on Twitter. And we'll also provide a link to some of the stuff that he is writing about this current moment. And uh, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher if you want to help others find this show. Thanks so much for listening. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.